Alright, so Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place. Thank you for the people that are here. Father, I thank you that we're breaking through traditions uh, to come into a place of light and truth. I pray that you'll help me, Father, whatever I say that is uh, not going to be helpful or promote people's spiritual growth. Lord, I pray that it would just be forgotten. But whatever I say that's of you, that's on point, uh, let it be driven home, even if it challenges our current mindsets. And so we give you thanks. We give you praise for that in Jesus' name. And if you can agree with that, saints, just say with me, amen. Amen. Is this, is this on? Okay, cool. Alright, so I want to look at the cross again. I want to come back to looking at the cross. And I want to look at it as a pathway of ascension. A pathway of ascension. Or a pathway from uh, a lower form of existence to a higher form of existence. A lower form of thinking to a higher form of thinking. <clears throat> and let's start with this. Alright, here's a quote from Clement of Alexandria. Now, Clement of Alexandria was one of the church fathers who predated the Nicene Council. And he's really fascinating to read. Um, Alexandria was an intellectual hub at that time. It was a spiritual hub at that time. And he was conversant with uh, Jews as well as Greeks. And his writings are just top-notch. Here's what he says. Christ by whom the eyes of the blind recover sight, will shed on you a brighter light than the sun. O truly sacred mysteries, O pure light, my way is lit with torches, and I see the heavens and God. I become holy as I am initiated. The Lord is the revealer of the mysteries. He marks the initiated with his seal and illuminates him. He commends to the believer, he commends the believer to the Father to be safe with him forever. Remember that statement. He commends to the believer, the Father, to be safe with him forever. If you wish, you can also be initiated and you will dance with the chorus of angels and around the unbegotten and imperishable only true God. The Word of God will join with us in our hymn. Pretty powerful, isn't it? What's a mystery? A mystery is something that's not immediately present. Jesus said it this way in one of the Gospels. He says, to you it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to those who are without, all things come in parables. Stories, tales, parables, right? So, in other words, what Jesus is saying is that for every parable, there is a deeper Meaning, there's a mystery hidden inside of it. And so what I would suggest is that there's a mystery hidden inside of every scripture. There's a mystery hidden inside of every Bible story. And it takes illumination from the Lord himself in order to understand it. But it is the understanding of the mystery. It's not the understanding of the literal text. It's the understanding of the mystery that shines a light on your path and leads you in the way of life. And that's why straight is the way and narrow is the way and few there be that find it. Right? So we're going to talk about mysteries today in the cross. So, yeah, I'm really going to have, we're going to go deeper today. You're really going to have to think with me. I'm going to go slowly. And I just need you to fasten your seatbelts with me, okay, as we look at this. Because I promise you, we're going to look at the cross the way you've never looked at it before. And some people think that's heresy, but good for them. <clears throat> oh, I just like making fun. Now, let's, let's, let's validate this. Proverbs. Did I? Yeah, this is, one I, this is the one I want you to see. This is what I was talking about earlier. 
Psalm 78, 1 through 3 says, My people hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. Watch this. I will open my mouth with a parable. Not a literal story. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. Now look at this. Things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. This is a Jewish guy speaking. And he says, those stories that our ancestors told us, those stories that are written down in your Bible, in your Torah, they're parables. They're hidden things. And I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to speak to you in those things. There it is, right there in the Bible. Watch this. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. A wise man will hear an increase in learning. (laughs) Not stay stuck preaching the same thing they've been preaching for the last 30 years. Just. Or believe in the same stuff they believed in the last 30 years. It's a sign that you lack wisdom. Because the wise man will hear and will increase in learning, and a man of understanding shall attain to wise counsel. What does wise counsel do for you? To understand a proverb. And the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. Hmm, I could give you several more, but alas, we have to move on. (laughs) We're not going to ever get to the cross. So what you have to understand is there is an outer meaning to the Bible and there is an inner meaning to the Bible. There is a meaning... To scripture that pertains to something outside of you, and there is a meaning to scripture that pertains to something within you. Got it? The outer pertains to that which occurred historically and literally. The inner is the mystery, it's the dark saying. It's what the parable is pointing to. The inner is that which happens within a person's soul. So if all you have is a literal historical interpretation, it does nothing to change you. Absolutely nothing, because it's outside you. Whether you live or die, whether you existed or didn't exist, whether your parents thought it was a good idea to get together and make you or didn't decide it was a good idea to get together and make you, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't affect you one iota, because it's still true. The only truth that sets you free is the truth you know. The only truth that changes you is the truth that impacts you on the inside. So the only meaning that really counts in terms of personal growth and change and spiritual growth and being conformed to the image of Christ or whatever you want to call it, the only meaning that really counts is the inner meaning. Because it's the only one that can change you. The crucifixion, now watch this and I'll substantiate this, the event of the crucifixion, as it pertains to its historical literal nature, is the outer meaning. But there is also a crucifixion that pertains to something that goes on inside of you. And that's what I'm trying to talk about. I'm not trying to take away the outer meaning. My God, we've had centuries of the outer meaning explained to us. Right? I'm just saying there's, there's depths to this there's, there's, that we haven't seen. Well, I haven't. Maybe you have so look at what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. <coughs> the life I now live in the body, I live by the faith, I live by faith 
in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Paul says that event that happened out there was really something also that happened in here that empowered me to live life totally differently than I was living it before. Empowered me to live it so differently that it's like the old me is dead. That empowered Christ in me to be released. And see, that's what they don't want. They want you dependent on an external system rather than going within and realizing that Christ doesn't dwell. God does not dwell in a temple made with hands. God dwells inside the human soul. At the core of every human being is the image of God, the breath of God. When God breathed into Adam, what did he do? He took his inner essence and he made it the inner essence of that statue in the garden. He formed man from the dust of the clay. You got a statue. He takes his inner essence and he makes it the inner essence of Adam, which means that the inner essence of every human being is the divine breath and the divine spark. That's just Bible. That's just gospel, guys. And so what, 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 what this does, what this message does, is it empowers you to shed everything that's not like the life and the power and the glory and the wisdom and the meaning and the fruitfulness and the joy and the love and the glory and the majesty of your Creator so that it can be manifested freely and fully inside of you. And that's what they don't want you to see and that's what they don't want you to get. And that's why they tell you, don't go look inside. Don't go look inside because all you're going to find is sin and trash and garbage and junk. And that's what we've been telling people in the Western church for 1,600 years. And I'm here to tell you it's an absolute lie. It does not hold up to scrutiny. It does not hold up to critical thinking. It does not hold up to Scripture. It does not hold up to reason. And it does not hold up to experience. And you don't have to believe it if you don't want to. And you don't have to let any preacher or any person intimidate you and control you because somehow they've got more spiritual experience than you or they got more spiritual knowledge than you. I'm telling you the entire path of the Christian life is for you to look within and discover the treasure of who you are. You don't need anybody. You don't need somebody to confess your sins to. You don't need somebody to bless bread and wine so that you can drink it. You don't need anybody to baptize you. And you sure as hell don't have to be on any kind of church membership role. All right. But something has to happen inside. So if as teachers and preachers and pastors and leaders, we are not pointing you to the cross that's within you. We are missing the boat. We are not preaching Pauline revelation. We are preaching something else. Alright. Carl Jung. Some people send me to hell just for reading Carl Jung. But he was a very, very intelligent psychotherapist, psychologist, brilliant man, and he understood the inner workings of the soul. Watch what he says here. The Western attitude, with its emphasis on the object, tends to fix the ideal which he calls Christ. In its outward aspect, and thus to rob it of its relation to the inner man. As long as the sin bearer is just out there, it's not going to touch your inner man. As long as the Christ is just out there, it's not going to change who you are. So in the Western culture, we fixate everything outside of us. So everything's outside of us. The devil's outside of us. God is outside of us. Hell is outside of us. Heaven is outside of us. Sin is outside of us. Our redemption is outside of us. But you cannot have spirituality if you don't go within. Period. It, you, you can't. And Carl Jung saw that and he 
made those statements, and the church attacked him as a heretic. And now, if people never even read him, but they'll say, you're going to hell because you're just studying psychology. They, they just want to keep you in an intellectual ghetto, so they... Okay. All right. John 19. So let's look at this. John 19, 16 through 18. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. I want you to notice that John takes the time to bring out a geometric pattern. Number one, Christ in the middle, two others crucified with him on each side, right? And he gets crucified where? The place of the skull. Now, I'm not denying that there's a Mount Calvary where Jesus died. I'm not denying the outward thing. But what I'm telling you is the gospel writers were interested in showing you something within. Particularly John. I cut this part out of my message because it just make it too long, but I'm going to insert it anyway. Is that all right? Because I want you to see this. You all know the verse, John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us, right? Everybody say among. Okay. In the Greek, the word there that they translate among is the word en. It's simply, in, in, in our letters, it would be en, en. So the Word became flesh and dwelt en us, and they translate it as among. Now, I could take you to Colossians 1.27 that says that Paul preaches Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you look at the word in, in the Greek, guess what it is? E-N. I can take you to 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, where Paul says, do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you? Guess what the word in is there? E. In. I could take you to Acts 2.42, where they are daily in the temple. And guess what that Greek word is? E-N. So why do the translators translate it as in um, consistently throughout the scriptures, whether it's in a building or in a person or in Christ? But we get to John 1.14 and it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If that isn't a fixation on the outer interpretation, I don't know what is. Because here's what it could, here's what it could read. If they, if they were consistent in translating, here's how it would read. And the word became flesh and dwelt in us, and we beheld his glory. Now watch this. If you follow the gospel of John, I'll do a whole message on this, but I, I gotta, I lead up to this. Watch this. As you're reading through John chapter 1, when Jesus meets his first two disciples, the numbers are significant. He meets his first two disciples. They ask him a question. Does anybody know what it is? They ask him, they say, Lord, where do you dwell? Where do you abide? And you know what he says to him? Come and see. Watch this. And the word became flesh and dwelt in us, 
And then the whole purpose of John's gospel is for you to see where he dwells. And if you don't get it, by the time he's speaking plainly with his disciples in John 14, 15, and 16, he says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me and I am in you. In other words, the whole point of the gospel is for you to see that you're the, dwelling, you're the place where he dwells. And it's by seeing that he dwells within you that you behold his glory. So the, the wedding feast has nothing to do with, with an actual... I'm not saying it didn't happen, but I'm saying understand what the man's doing. Why were there six water pots? Because six is the number of man. And water was a type of just natural consciousness that flows. And so the whole point is, is that when you begin to let Christ work inside of you, He can fill you up and transform your consciousness from something common into something that's sacred. So guess what? When he's telling the story of the crucifixion, he's still inviting you to look within. Which is why he emphasizes that Christ was killed at the place of the skull. Because the, the place that the cross has to work is in your mind. And is it possible, is it just possible, that the two thieves, one on either side, is the right hemisphere of the brain and the left hemisphere of the brain that also have to die? in order for you to be exalted and live in Christ. It's the crucifixion of the carnal mind. <laughs> and we'll talk about this. Okay, i, I got to hurry. i, I still got a lot to get through. All right, so with that in mind, now, now keep in mind, you've got something in the center and then you've got two on each side, right? Okay, now watch this. Zechariah 4, 1 through 3. This is where you got to, you, this is dark sayings, all right? Zechariah 4, 1 through 3. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened out of sleep. It's a spiritual principle. He asked me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So you have two trees. Remember, the Bible says about the cross that Jesus was hung on a tree. So you have two trees and you have a lampstand, which symbolizes a tree, but it's full of radiant light. See it? Did, did those pictures come through, Mike, that I sent? They didn't? Dang it. Dang it. I really needed that one picture. I didn't know that. I'll show it to you next week. Watch this. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And again I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two golden pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. These are the two anointed, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now what gave the lampstand its light was olive oil. Right? So these branches, these trees are supplying the lampstand with olive oil so that it can be illuminated. And it has seven pipes, right? Where did Jesus go right before he went to Mount Calvary? The Mount of Olives. So Jesus is the light of the world, but so are you. All right, let's go to Revelation. And if you want to have, you know, anyway... Settle down, Aaron. Revelation 11, 3 and 4. The two witnesses. The two witnesses, you watch those movies, there's two guys with long beards because we take it all literally and they're actually literally breathing fire at these tanks. <laughs> the Lord help us. 
I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the whole earth. See it? Now watch what happens to these two witnesses. Later on in Revelation. Oops. Oh, I didn't get... I'm missing a verse. Ah. Revelation 11. Mike does a great job doing these. Thank you, Mike. He usually puts them together for me at the last minute. I'm sending him stuff. Sometimes I walk in on Sunday morning. i got to change this or that. Are you guys staying with me? Yes. Just um, stay with me here. So... It talks about when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, verse 7, will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. Verse 8, and their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually, everybody say spiritually, is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So it connects the death of the two witnesses, the two olive trees, to the death of Christ in a spiritual fashion. Why didn't he just say in Jerusalem? Because he wants you to get the point. He's not speaking literally. He's speaking spiritually. And it's all of it is about Christ in you. You see it? Now here's the thing. Jesus made seven proclamations from the cross. How many pipes are in that lampstand? How many lamps? Seven. So what we're talking about is a when, when you look at the words of Jesus, what you're doing is you're looking at a pathway of illumination out of darkness and into light. I wish I, I had gotten an old icon. Actually, um, these guys over here showed it to me on a Wednesday night. It's, an icon's a, a painting. So you can find these older paintings of Jesus. I'll try to bring it next week, being crucified on the cross. And here's how they depict it. So this is, this is ancient, right? I'm going to try and do it verbally for you. So they've got Jesus on the cross like this, right? And they've got the, the, the beam of the cross in the ground. And then in the one that I picked, underneath the ground, it, it is painted black. So it's like you can see into the ground and it's painted black. And guess what's laid right there in the center? A human skull. Then as you look at the painting, when you get to Jesus' face, it's got the sort of the halo. You know how you see those in all those older paintings? Do you know what that is? That's the light of God or the light of the divine nature shining out of the person. So when they depict saints, when they depict angels, and when they depict Jesus on the cross, there's a light. But here's the mystery in it. You've got Jesus being crucified at the place of the skull, and it's showing the carnal lower mind that is full of darkness and that leads to death. Because Paul said to be carnally minded is death. And then it shows a pathway of ascension until you come to the spiritual mind that's dominated by the spirit that is full of the divine nature that is illuminated. And so really what you're seeing is the cross is a pathway to spiritual enlightenment. 
And your oldest paintings of the cross depict this. Why? Because people like Clement of Alexandria that I quoted earlier understood these things. And we've lost them because we fixated on the outer side and we said, no, salvation is an outward event and God is, is somehow settling something that has absolutely nothing to do with you instead of doing something inside you. So let's watch this path. Okay, promise this is going to be the best part. You ready? I promise. It's not going to be just intellectual fodder. I have to do this because then people go out and say, well, Aaron doesn't believe in the cross. You understand? I've got to belabor these points, right? First thing, this is the order they come in Scripture. First thing Jesus says is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that is the voice of the lower mind that's in darkness and death. That what Jesus is actually doing at the cross is not suffering the penalty of God's wrath to save you from God's wrath. What he's doing is he's entering into your human experience and suffering in order to rescue you and bring you out of darkness and into the light. And so there's nobody that hasn't ever been in darkness. You know, have you never had a time, I mean, the, the, the person who loses a spouse, God forbid the parent who loses a child, um, the person who is being abused or raped or whatever, that they didn't think, where was God? Why did this happen to me? Where was God in that moment? And so we all start out in this life, going through life thinking, what the heck is this? Like, God just dropped us off here and forgot about us. And so we go through life with a sense of the separation from the presence of God, with no knowledge of God at all, experiencing life as things just happen to us and feeling like, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so the first thing Christ does is he enters into that to show you and me that the first thing we have to sacrifice, the first thing we have to give up if we are going to come to a place of real spiritual empowerment, the first thing we have to give up is our own sense of separation and forsakenness by God and everything that goes with it. You have to give up those dark voices that tell you you're all alone. You have to give up those dark voices that tell you that nobody loves you and nobody cares about you. See, that's the stuff you're sacrificing at the cross. Religion wants you to sacrifice your fun, wants you to sacrifice your happiness, wants you to give up Coca-Cola for Lent or whatever the case may be. And, and it's nothing about that. We have to come to the cross and say, okay, I had a valid experience of pain. I was uh, abused. I was rejected. I was bullied. I was raped. I was whatever I was. And it's a valid experience. But I'm bringing that to the place of the cross to surrender that sense of independence and give that up. And, and then the cross has the power to heal you and kill all that junk. So it no longer has to be part of your life. So what's the next thing that he says? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Don't you find it ironic that Jesus says, Father, forgive them on the basis of their lack of knowledge. And yet we will turn around and say that God will send people to eternal conscious torment on the basis of their lack of knowledge. How's that work? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do as long as they're alive. But the minute they die with no not, then we're going to punish them and for all eternity. Does that even make sense to anybody? So the second part is, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So we have to give up our sense of separation and forsakenness. We also have to give up our sense of self-righteousness and independent judgment of ourselves and of other people. See, this is a place where what do I bring to the cross? I sacrifice my right to judge 
Most of hell you and I create for ourselves internally is, is based on judgments that we've made about ourselves. And then most of the hell we create with other people is based on judgments that we make about them not doing what we think they're supposed to do. <laughs> so how can anybody have peace? It's no wonder it's a mess. So the second thing you have to sacrifice and give up of the fallen dark mind is your right to judge anybody for anything. Because they know not what they do. So you're judging the action and judging the offense without realizing they're doing it in ignorance and darkness and separation from God and from His love and every good and perfect gift and all the good things and wonderful things that God brings into people's lives. That's why they're doing what they're doing. And you have no right to judge yourself and you have no right to judge anybody else. And that's why it was religion that killed Jesus, not His Father. The parable of the vineyard owners. Come on, religious folk. I'll send them servants. Oh, I know. I'll send them my son. They'll honor my son. What'd they do? They said, this is the heir. Let's take him and kill him. He didn't say, I'm going to send my son to die so I feel better about these vineyard people so I can, I don't know. Well, where do we get this stuff? We just hear it repeated over and over and over again so we think it's got to be true. <laughs> and somebody dares question it. And they're in, they're in deep doo-doo, man. And it's our job to let you know. All right, so you see that? Third thing then is this. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. In other words, if you can give up those two things, if you can give up your independence and your sense of being forsaken, and you can give up your need to judge everybody, and you can just walk in forgiveness towards yourself, and you can walk in forgiveness towards everybody else, now all of a sudden you'll find inside a place of paradise. It's that simple. So those two things, now you're moving out of the darkness and into the light. Now he takes those parts of you. See, what's the olives? What's the olives? You're the, you're the olive trees that has to be pressed and squeezed so that the good stuff can come out and can be transformed into light. See, when you go into the garden with Jesus and you say, not my will, but your will be done, you're, what you're saying is, I'm giving up all this independence. I'm giving up all this junk. I'm giving up all this hurt. I'm giving up all this pain. I'm giving up all this judgmentalism. I'm sacrificing it. And that now is becoming the, 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 the energy by which God can illuminate you into this place called paradise. Where now you begin, the kingdom begins to come in your heart. Today you will be with me in paradise. Not in, after some millennium somewhere off in the future. <laughs> Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What, let me take you back. What did, I, what did Alexandria say? Or the, Clement from Alexandria. He said he, said he will... Take the believer and commit him to the Father so that he is eternally safe with him. See, he's healing the breach. There's a huge step from, my God, my God. Do you see it? Do you see it? He steps into your psyche. He takes the, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He elevates it to the place of paradise. And then he gives it to the Father for safekeeping forever. So you don't ever have to worry about death. And you don't ever have to worry about hell. And you don't ever have to worry about separation or abandonment. I, I remember one time dealing with feelings of abandonment that came from you know stuff that happened in my childhood. And I remember the Spirit of God speaking to me. It's impossible for you to be abandoned for never will I leave you never will I forsake you I'm with you always into your hands I commit my spirit there is so much safety and so much peace that floods into your mind when the light of that commitment 
coming on. And so that's where you and I have to come to the cross and we have to say, Father, whatever's going on, Lord, I don't know why this happened. Lord, I don't know why people act like they do. But into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now this one's going to upset the literal folks because we have Mary at the foot of the cross. But it's interesting that John, remember, what's John's purpose? Come and see what? Come and see the Christ dwelling in you. So when he's talking about the mother, he never calls her Mary. Now, this is my personal heresy. I didn't get this from a scholar or a church father, but this is Aaron's personal heresy. The mother of the Son of God in John's Gospel is not Mary, but the Spirit. Because, thank you, because in John chapter 3... Unless you be, we say born again, it's a bad translation. Unless you be born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Well, Nicodemus says what? Do I have to enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born? No. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And so Jesus says, if you're a child of heaven, you're born from above. So who's his mama? Thank you. So when he's at the banquet, the wedding banquet, and his mother says, whatever he says to you, do it. He's talking about talking about when you surrender to the voice of the Spirit, the water of human, the human consciousness inside you becomes transformed into something divine. And you attend the wedding feast in your own heart. So at the foot of the cross, I don't think he's talking about Mary. He's talking about his mother. Woman, here is your son, because you have to be born of the Spirit to enter. Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, not to John. See, when you read it from an outer perspective, every scholar everywhere says that John referred to himself. He was so humble. He referred to himself as the the disciple whom Jesus loved. No, he's trying to get you to see yourself. You're the disciple who Jesus loved. So he takes the Spirit at the cross and the disciple who Jesus loves, who is you, and he joins you together in this family relationship so you can be born in the Spirit, so you can see the kingdom, so you can enter the kingdom. All this is taking place at the cross. Then he says, I thirst. Why is that in there? I thirst. Why is that in there? Because until you've dealt with all this lower junk, the true desires of your heart are not free to flow. I've been watching Jim Carrey, some things about Jim Carrey, and I don't, I don't know a lot about the actor. But it's so interesting because he, he's, he's, he's doing a lot of things for Christianity. He's painting pictures, which, you know, upset some political folks. And he's, but he's, he's, he's donating money. He's serving at homeless shelters. And I saw a video, and he talks in there about, about Christ. And here's what he said. He said, I had everything I could want. And I still wasn't satisfied. And here's what he said. He said, I realized the desires I was trying to quench could not be quenched by fame and could not be quenched by fortune. 
He said, we enter into things and we don't even know what it is that we really desire because most of us are led around by our pain of our own forsakenness or led around by our judgments of what's right and what's wrong, doing what we should do instead of what we want to do. Worried about what's going to happen. No safety or security about the future. And so Jesus is saying, as you walk through this process, then the fountain of your true desires can open up so that they can be satisfied by the God from whom every good and perfect gift comes down from above. And then finally he says, it is finished. And it's the Greek word teleo, and it means to carry out a thing to the full. Carry out a thing to the full. Full maturity, full transformation. If your eye be single, your whole body will be filled with light. Do you see it? It's beautiful. Now, this, let's look at this. Therefore, Hebrews, last verse, Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms or of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. There are seven things there. But here's what he says. Let us go on to perfection, right? Perfection, leaving, means to the sending, to divorce. Leaving means to divorce. It's the sending away of a wife by her husband. And the word perfection is the same word that Jesus said when he said it is finished. I've heard people translate when he said it is finished, it is paid in full. Well, I guess you could get there. And they say, see, Jesus paid the sin debt. But that's really not what it means. It's, it's the idea of a plant or a tree coming to full maturity and into full bloom. So Jesus is saying, when you come through these seven pipes, then it is finished. You're, you're at maturity. You're at full bloom. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, for, divorce yourself from these things and move into perfection, this thing over here. But now, what does he tell us to divorce ourselves from? Oh, get ready. Here it comes. But the cards and letters are going to come pouring in. <laughs> Leaving the discussion, divorce yourself from the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Notice principles is in italics there. Divorce yourself from the elementary Christ. And what is that? And let us go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works external. Faith towards God, towards God external. The doctrine of baptisms, getting externally dunked in water. The laying on of hands, somebody coming and connecting you with Jesus because they laid hands on you so you could get healed. The resurrection of the dead, someday maybe somewhere in the sweet by and by, and eternal judgment, which is an event out in the future that who knows. He said, let's quit talking about that stuff. Let's divorce ourselves from those discussions. Where is that in the church today? 
That's all we care about, man. Faith toward God, you only have to have faith when you don't know. It's true. You only have to have faith when you don't know. He's saying, let's enter into experiential knowledge. Let's enter into that perfection of Christ in you, who is the hope of glory. Let's leave this stuff. Let's quit worrying about what people are doing and telling them they have to repent. And let's quit telling people, well, you've got to believe the Bible. Because, you know, if, if you can't figure out who Cain's wife was. And so we come up with stuff like Cain married his sister. I mean, that's, that's an answer that we give to a modern 21st century person. We, we build this whole purity culture on, my God, you, you have a wet dream, you're going to hell. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Julie. <laughs> and then we tell people Cain married his sister, just so we can make the system work. Because, you know, we've got to get people to have faith toward God. And he's saying, leave those discussions. What's the way to be baptized? In the name of Jesus or in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit? I don't know. I did all three. Four. Sprinkled and dunked. I'm in, baby. <laughs> I prayed the sinner's prayer on the back of my Bible. Don't you think if the sinner's prayer was so important, God would have put it first page? At least in the appendix? How come Paul didn't write at the end of his letter to the Thessalonians, and if there be any of you that don't know Christ, if you don't know where you're going tonight when you die, if you'll just fill out this card and pray this prayer, you can, tonight you can have assurance of eternal life. That would make me feel a lot better because then I follow all the external steps. But see, that's the whole point. It's, not, it's our fixation with the external. It's not an external event. It's an ongoing process that takes place inside the inner man as the cross works, as Christ works, as you're continually healed in ongoing encounters with heaven that sets you free to be who God made you to be so that you could be a unique expression of His light and glory in the world. And you can't do that if you're trying to fit into a religious system or a religious structure or somebody else else's idea of what's right and wrong it has to come from within it has to be authentic it has to be genuine and it has to be liberated from the mind that's in darkness and death and you don't get that by signing a membership card she said but if you do you get cookies good thing to do And on that note, we shall say amen. Let's pray. (laughs) I'm going to give you a chance to respond this morning. Actually, I don't do this a lot, but I want to give you a chance to respond. If you'd say, you know what, I want to embrace this path. I want to, and you need help getting unstuck. Maybe you're stuck in some of those lower mind places. Um, Maybe you're dealing with a sense of abandonment or, or unforgiveness towards yourself or someone else. Or whatever the case may be, maybe you're spiritually dry. Maybe you're like at that point where you're just like, I thirst, and you're spiritually dry. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit will move upon you and do something for you uh, today to, get, to give you a chance to respond. Does it make sense to you? I, I hope you had some fun with this. I hope it was helpful to you. 
Um, you can take it home in that pattern of the seven steps, and you can just walk through it in your prayer journaling and your time, whatever, meditation, however you want to do it. Or you can just file it and not come back next week either. So <laughs> whatever you choose to do, you're free. We love you. God bless you. Um, but let's pray. Father, thank you for your people. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are truly our mother, that you truly are uh, a nurturing mother who cares about us, who loves us. And we welcome your nurturing and abiding presence over our lives. And we thank you for giving birth to us in new ways of thinking, new ways of being, and new ways of experiencing heaven, experiencing you, and experiencing life. Father, Holy Spirit, right now I just ask for uh, your presence to move over hearts and minds to bring deep levels of healing psychologically, mentally, and emotionally, and spiritually, and even physically. We just thank you for your healing presence moving right now over our lives. Lord, heal our hearts for every person that's feeling desperate, every person that's feeling forsaken, whether they're here, whether they're watching, whether they're listening. Let your presence right now, let your light invade those places. We, we release the power of the cross to do its work in their hearts and in their minds. Now just kind of soak in that for a minute. And realize that that Christ took up residency within you. The Word became flesh and dwelt in you, whether you knew it or not. He's with you. He's for you. Always. Bless your people, Lord. Amen. Amen. Instead of doing, you know, altar calls that may put someone on the spot or have them, you know, it's nobody's really, nobody's business what you're dealing with, but yours and God's. But we do like to provide opportunities. Sometimes when I preach messages like this, people go home messed up because they, they didn't, uh, it opened up too much stuff inside of them. And, uh, and that's okay. God will work with you there as well. But sometimes if you feel like it really opened up something in you or really touched something in you, Sometimes it's good to just get some prayer. So we have some prayer ministers um, who will hang around up front after we're done here who will be more than happy to pray with you about whatever your needs are. Um, and uh, you don't even have to share. They can just um, You can just say, I would like prayer, and they can begin to minister to you based on that. So if you would like that, we provide that for you. Otherwise, God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful day.